Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alexandra J. Finley about her book, An Intimate Economy, Enslaved Women, Work, and America's Domestic Slave Trade, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Finley is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. An Intimate Economy examines the history of American slavery and capitalism by foregrounding women's labor in the antebellum slave trade. Dr. Finley examines a myriad of topics, including domestic, reproductive, and sexual labor that enslaved and free black women performed at various points in the slave trade. This work adds to our knowledge on how central women were to the extension and growth of the domestic slave trade throughout the antebellum period. Dr. Finley, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners uh, how you came to this topic and why you decided to study it? Sure. Yes. Well, I came uh, to this project very circuitously. It was a very indirect route from my initial research interests to um, the book as it is now. So when I was starting out uh, as a new graduate student, I was interested in early America and particularly in interracial families and the formation of ideas about race. And one book that I'd read as an undergraduate and that really influenced my interest was um, Joshua Rothman's Notorious in the Neighborhood. And so he has this interlude in the book about a man named Silas Omohundro who had children with the woman he enslaved, Karina. And I, I was fascinated by the book and particularly by this story. And so I checked the footnotes uh, from this chapter as I was in the course of writing my prospectus for my master's thesis. And I found that Omohundro had kept an account book um, where he referenced Karina. And it was housed at the Library of Virginia. And I went to graduate school at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. So, you know, Richmond was about an hour away. And I decided I was going to make a trip up to just look at the account book. And that was the first of many trips to the Library of Virginia. Um, and on that first trip, I saw the account book firsthand, and I was just blown away by the depths um, and the detail of the source and fascinated by what it told us about Karina's life. So I, I photographed the book, and you know, this was what, 10 years ago? So I used an actual camera. I didn't have a, a phone camera. And uh, then I went home and I, um, over the course of you know the next few months, I transcribed every page, which took a long time. But when it was finished, it really allowed me uh, to map out how Omohundro had spent his money, when, why, what kind of things he was purchasing. Um, but in really interesting ways, uh, it also allowed me to chart his feelings about Karina and most importantly, it gave me a glimpse into her life um, from the type of work that she performed to how she dressed to the kind of material objects that she would have interacted with. So I use this account book and several related court cases about Omohundro's estate 
to write my master's thesis, which was really about uh, Silas and Karina and their children, using them as a case study about the politics of sex and race in antebellum Virginia. But when it came to write uh, my dissertation, I realized that maybe I needed to expand my um, research horizons, maybe pursue a different line of historiographical thinking. You know, I wasn't going to top Notorious in the Neighborhood, so maybe I needed to uh, to try to make a different sort of argument. Um, and so I thought, you know, there's so much that's been written uh, about the domestic slave trade. And I thought maybe I would use the same source I'd already worked with, the account book, um, to think more about the domestic slave trade and particularly about uh, financial networks that accounts like Omohundro's revealed. Because most of the totals I'd ended up with my, from my uh, transcription, you know, reflected information about promissory notes, loans, debts, banks, and, and so on. And that seemed like it could be a rich avenue for inquiry. So I proceeded to, to search for similar account books from slave traders like Omohundro, and I found quite a few that are still extant. Um, and in addition to that, I looked at a good number of bank records and other types of financial materials. But even as I was thinking about these sorts of questions um, that were more kind of traditionally economic in nature, I couldn't get Karina's story from my mind. And I, I kept noticing that in these slave traders' account books, there were other women, right? And they were found in these sources where according to conventional women, they sorry, to conventional wisdom, um, women shouldn't have been. So in between the, all the information about promissory notes and bank drafts, um, there, were, well, there were women, right? Sometimes uh, they were named in the records, sometimes not. Sometimes there were details about what kind of work they performed, but not always. And, and to me, it really showed that here were women who were present in the, the antebellum slave trade who played a role uh, in many senses in their labor uh, towards the antebellum economy. And I, I wanted to know more details about them. So I guess uh, to kind of wrap up, my interest in history had always been rooted in race, gender, and labor, and also in individual stories and people's lives. And so the presence of these women um, working uh, in these account books spoke to all of those interests. And so, you know, I decided to follow my heart, so to speak, I guess, um, and abandon these questions about kind of bank records and finance and to really go in search of more evidence about the women who I found evidence of in the account books and to see how they fit into this broader financial picture. Um, so it was through exploring their lives um, and finding out what I could about them that I came to form the argument that I make in the book. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, kind of get sort of almost stumbling across this just by chance and finding a book and then going and finding, you know, this one source and, you know, sort of being fascinated with that. And, you know, what are some of the other sources you've known? You've mentioned, you know, these account books and some bank records and stuff like that. But how are you able to use these sources and what other sources might you have been able to find to, you know, really delve into these women's lives? Yeah, that's um, something that I love to talk about because I think that there are so many um, avenues for research, right? To use old materials or materials people have looked at before in different ways. And so when it came to finding women like Karina or some of the other case studies that I talk about in the book, it required a lot of 
kind of approaching archives that, you know, maybe people had used before with a different lens, you know, just looking for different types of information or reading against the grain. Um, but also, I think, just approaching different archives. Um, so in my search for Karina, you know, I researched, I started with this amazing account book from the Library of Virginia. And then I thought, what are, you know, any possible ways that maybe evidence of her life survives. So I went, you know, I found a couple letters in um, the National Archives. Uh, I went to the Lancaster County, Pennsylvania Historical Society for some court records. I went to an active courthouse in Richmond, you know, and I was like taking notes while someone in the background was like paying a parking ticket. Um, so there are all these really diverse uh, archival experiences. Um, and, you know, I ended up looking at a variety of records, the account books, the court cases, but also city directories, um, commercial records, bank records, tax records, sometimes the papers of contemporaries who lived uh, in Richmond at the time or people who may have worked with Omohundro, um, slave narratives, newspapers, archaeological reports. Um, there was an archaeological excavation um, of Lumpkin Slave Jail, which was uh, a property very close to where Karina lived. So, you know, just a very wide variety of sources. And I think I had to cast my net so widely because, you know, she didn't have her own private collection of papers preserved somewhere. Um, she wasn't someone whose name I could put in finding aids and her story couldn't really even be easily translated into like keywords or search terms. So I tried to think really expansively um, and consider all the ways that her existence could have been recorded, both, you know, kind of indirectly and perhaps unintentionally. And most of the, you know, the really amazing and revealing sources that I found were actually located in really small locally based institutions. Um, and in a lot of cases, those were underfunded. Um, so in some ways, you know, the hierarchies of the antebellum period are recreated uh, in the way that present day archives are funded. So, you know, one of my favorite places to research is um, the New Orleans Public Library. And they have these really amazing records um, in the Louisiana division of the city's, the parish's district court cases. And it's this really amazing space and, you know, wonderful archivists who work there. Um, and it's such a rich resource that isn't fully explored, I think, just because of lack of funding. So, many of the court cases I've looked at uh, still had ribbons tied around them or they were still folded. Like they hadn't really been accessed since, you know, they'd been closed in the antebellum period. And I think part of why they haven't been explored yet is just that, you know, these smaller local institutions don't have the funding to fully catalog or display or advertise their sources and certainly don't have the funding, you know, to offer grants to researchers to come and use their collections. You know, I was lucky enough to get funding from William and Mary, but not everybody has that opportunity. And so I think that the places historians are most likely to find the histories of people who historically were socially and economically marginalized are also the places, you know, that are marginalized today and the places that are the hardest to find the resources to travel to and research at. So, you know, I just think if we want to uncover more stories like Sarah Connors and Karina Hinton's and women um, like I write about, kind of have to think about how to make local records more accessible because sometimes that's our only window um, 
however brief and kind of fleeting into their lives. Yeah, I really like uh, what you were saying there in terms of, you know, how the sort of historical inequalities of the period that, you know, we study as historians are continually replicated in our own time period, as you were saying, with, you know, these underfunded um, and not sort of valued as much, you know, institutions that are in many ways the only way that we can capture these stories. And you have to sort of go in completely blind because they, like you said, they don't have the sort of financial means, the infrastructure to actually, you know, catalog, advertise, as you were saying, these sources. And so it makes it that much more difficult to actually capture people's lives. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of detective work. And sometimes as you're saying, you just go in blind and kind of, um, see what turns up, uh, and sometimes there are these really incredible treasures that, that you can find at these more local archives, but they're, they're harder to access and it takes more time um, to be able to locate them. And one of the things that you do with you know, the sources that you have in writing this book is uh, that I really like, at least, is the way you structure your chapters and that you begin it with you know a number of excerpts from a source uh, and then you actually sort of um, reiterate those or put some other ones in there throughout the, throughout the chapter and use those almost as like section headings. And so what was the purpose of doing that, uh, in your book and kind of structuring it that way? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there are several reasons I chose that format and it was a format that came to me really, uh, at the end of, of the writing process and, you know, right up to the deadline of having to send the, the manuscript in. Um, and the simplest reason is just basically that I wanted to try to bring the archive to the reader as much as possible um, and to illustrate how historical actors in question, the, the women I was writing about, how they reach us in the present through these, these records and to show the, the fragmentary and the abbreviated nature of this evidence of their lives. And connected to that, I wanted to show how most of the sources that I found about their lives were related in some way uh, or were created due to issues of finance, right? And men around them being concerned about money. So whether that was, um, you know, money being paid to a woman for sewing, uh, money being paid for uh, to purchase an enslaved woman, um, you know, money being paid for supplies that women would use for cooking or nursing, so on and so forth. So it really got me thinking about how we, we know about these women's existence primarily because of the way that men attach value to their bodies and to their labor and the products of their labor. So, you know, what does that say about the world that these women lived in, uh, how might they themselves have related to the money they received or to the material goods that they received, you know, with which they were asked to, you know, produce food or clothing. And then how can we today as historians tell a fair history of their lives when, when this is all we have uh, to go on for evidence? So I took the single lines from the account books or from the court records and tried to show how even though we have this very small piece of evidence, and it was even though it was created for other purposes um, historically, we today can really try to tease out um, histories that the, the financial records were not meant to reveal. 
but maybe nonetheless can tell us something about uh, individual women's existences. And in terms of doing that, one of the concepts that you lay out that's very important for your study as a whole is something called socially reproductive labor. And so what is this and, you know, why is it so important for how you study these women and, you know, the world that they inhabit? Sure. Yeah. Um, So socially reproductive labor um, is a term uh, that, you know, has its roots in kind of feminist theory and Marxist feminism. Um, And it it refers to all the work that goes into making a person in the social sense. So if you think about um, biological reproduction, it's the biological creation of a new person and giving birth to an individual. Um, And social reproduction is sort of what happens afterwards. So the forming and shaping of um, an infant into a member of society, but then also, and importantly, this daily preparation that it takes for us as individual people to engage with society and and to do all the activities um, of our lives. So, you know, food preparation, bodily care, um, maintenance of a living space, clothing the body, nursing, these are all examples of socially reproductive labor. And for me, it's important to distinguish socially reproductive labor from domestic labor because it has a broader scope. Um, And domestic labor, domestic work is very connected to socially reproductive labor and is in fact, you know, a really crucial foundational form of socially reproductive labor but it doesn't cover all forms of work that um, we could define as socially reproductive. So teaching, uh, for example, is a form of socially reproductive labor. Um, Nursing, you know, is a form of socially reproductive labor that isn't really encompassed within uh, the terminology of domestic labor. And socially reproductive labor is really at the heart of my study because the women that I researched uh, often provided multiple types of labor that went beyond what we would traditionally define as domestic work. And I also, you know, I also really like the term because I think it emphasizes the social role that this kind of labor plays and how all of our other interactions, you know, from personal interactions to market transactions, they all rest on these fundamental needs being met. And I wanted to emphasize the value of socially reproductive labor because it's so often, whether, you know, it's it's within discussions of the economy or history, it's, or the present day, you know, political situation, it's so often divorced uh, from broader understandings of value and an economy and quote unquote real or skilled work. Um, so I wanted to emphasize how skilled and how significant it is. Um, and the fact that in my research, it's enslaved women who are performing the majority of that crucial work. Um, meaning that when we think about enslaved women's work in these forms, you know, we have to include that in our conversation about the role of slavery in American economic development. Um, in general. And so in terms of speaking about these women, one of the women that you introduce us to first is Karina Hilton, uh, or Karina Hinton, sorry. Um, And so 
What can her life tell us about um, something that you also introduced fairly uh, early on called the fancy trade? And for people who are unfamiliar with that, what is the fancy trade as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, So, you know, Karina Hinton was an enslaved woman and she was born in Virginia. um, And we know very little about her life before the birth of her first child, whose father was the man who enslaved her, um, whose account book I, I talked about earlier, Silas Omahundro. And so, you know, it's her life comes to us largely through Omahundro's account books, particularly before Omahundro himself died. You know, most of our evidence of her comes from his accounts. But also, you know, more fleetingly later on, we, we see glimpses of her in some court cases and in two uh, letters that she wrote. And it's Karina's life, you know, that initially led me to ask these questions um, of the sources and put me on this research path. Um, and it was these references to her in particular that related to, you know, money loaned to her and gifts given to her. And uh, I'm realizing I'm getting off track now. But um, so this was a story that I really wanted to pursue, right, to kind of um, fulfill all these questions that I started out with with my research. So there are all these um In particular, there are large payments that Silas made to Karina for clothing um, enslaved people that he jailed and that he sold. And in addition to really rather large lump sums of money that he paid uh, to Karina annually or semi-annually, he also paid her additional money for clothing specific women sometimes. And not always, but sometimes these payments would reference that they, the clothing was kind of a fancier dress, right? It might involve jewelry uh, or more expensive shoes or accessories or fabrics. And these types of dress um, served as a visual marker of, a, of an enslaved woman being a quote-unquote fancy. And what they meant by fancy was a, an enslaved woman who was sold sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly for sex. Um, and you can see more explicit references in Silas's other account books where he writes down fancy by the names of some women. And this suggests that he may have openly referred to them as such, say, at an auction or at a private sale, um, even if it was not a term that was used widely kind of in public. It was certainly a term uh, that slave traders used with one another and that some customers likely would have known. So in the letters I've looked at, many slave traders even boast about, you know, so-called fancies and the prices that they or others would pay for them. Um, There's one kind of extraordinary reference in a court case um, where uh, a judge or a a lawyer asks uh, a slave trader to explain what he means by fancy. And he says by that, he means uh, he only gives a physical description, right? He says that Um, It means uh, an enslaved girl in her mid to late teens with light skin and long hair. So Karina fit that physical description. Um, She fit the age at the time that she bore Silas's first child. And so I think given Silas's engagement with the so-called fancy trade, um, it's likely that that's how he came into contact with her. Um, And, you know, additionally, I, I think that because many, if not if not most of the slave traders who've, uh, whose records I've found indicate that they uh, had an enslaved woman or women with whom they had children and likely forced into concubinage. And, you know, I 
want to clarify that I say likely, um, because on the one hand, I don't want to totalize all enslaved women's experiences. I don't want to make assumptions about their lives. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to forget the power differentials between um, what traders would have called a fancy girl and the traders themselves or other men um, who purchased women they considered fancy girls. And these were you know, both legal and economic and racial and social power differentials, um, leaving the women in question extremely vulnerable um, physically, emotionally, really in every sense to the men who enslaved them. And these were men who generally assumed that sexual access was part of enslaving someone. So Karina's life uh, shows us, I think, the terrible complexities of being in such a position, right? Like here you have a woman who at 14 or 16, between 14 and 16 years old, bore a child to the man who enslaved her. Um, she had no legal rights against him. He legally owned her. And she's in this impossible situation faced with, with very few choices for survival. And none of those choices are, are really ideal choices, you know? And so I think her life shows us um, the sense of desperation, the limitations placed on women in her position and the difficult choices they had to make. So, you know, when I read the entries about her having to clothe other women to be sold as fancies, you know, you think, what are her options? Well, she could have, she could have tried to run away. She could have tried to physically resist her condition, but in doing so, she risked further physical abuse and punishment and being separated from her own children. Um, or, you know, she could follow Silas's orders to dress these other enslaved women and then maybe try to use that to leverage some advantages for herself and for her children. And I think either choice entailed sacrifice and pain. So I just wanted to deal very delicately with women in her position to think about all the challenges before them because People before, you know, have written and spoken about women like Karina as on the one hand, you know, maybe falling in love with the men who enslaved them over time uh, and or describing them as traitors or villains. And I think what Karina shows us is how dangerous it is to make those kind of sweeping statements um, because her life shows, you know, that she's living at the nexus of so many competing forces and really messy, entangled relationships. Um, so I think she and women like her had to navigate a very fraught existence. And I think that's um, all highlighted right in these personal histories um, of women who were so-called fancies. I think for me, the sort of attention that you're able to give to the, you know, the complexities of, you know, the life of someone like Hinton and, women like her just being able to glean that from you know the sources that you do have and being able to give you know those complexities as much attention as you're able to is one of the strengths of the book and i really you know enjoyed being able to you know see you wrestling with that and being able to pull that out of your sources thank you and so in terms of you know uh, other things that are going on with, you know, women's role in the slave trade, one of the things that you look at are um, sale outfits and how enslaved women are often uh, at the forefront of uh, making those, tasked with making those. And so what are these and what does uh, women's role in actually making them tell us about the slave trade itself? 
Yeah, so um, sail outfits uh, refer to the outfits that uh, slave traders or people who ran jails generally gave to people before uh, sale, before either a private sale or an auction would take place. And they generally uh, would be two outfits and they looked very similar to one another um, across, you know, various locations and, and even chronological time periods. And they're generally made out of cheap cloth, right? And were fairly utilitarian, but not always. Uh, and they're this example of how slave traders attempted to commodify enslaved people and to fit them into predetermined categories, you know, whether that was um, someone who they were trying to sell as maybe a butler or someone who they envisioned as being sold under a different kind of type. Um, and this was their effort to make enslaved people, uh, right, essentially into objects. And the fact that slave traders often made enslaved women themselves make these outfits for their own commodification, um, whether they were women in Karina's position or women who were waiting uh, for sale in a jail who, while they're imprisoned, might be told to make dresses um, or other outfits, I think speaks to, to several things. Um, again, one just being the lack of options and control that these women had being forced to work for their own sale for the profit of the people who were, were enslaving them and jailing them. And also how valuable um, work like sewing and clothing construction was. Um, I think the language around sewing especially like plain sewing in that time period starts to devalue and kind of discredit the skill required in such work. But being able to sew even on a basic level, particularly to do the really elaborate work of kind of um, cutting and draping of clothing, it took, took a, a good deal of knowledge. Um, and so it was a vital tool for slave traders, and they relied on women for this work. And every account book of a slave trader that I've looked at includes a substantial output of money um, towards clothing and sewing supplies. It's not always clear who's doing the sewing, but sewing was this um, feminized uh, work, right? That, that men conceived of it as women's work. And so when I do see the names of who's sewing, it's, it's always a woman. And I've found... Um, in addition, you know, court cases where traders will argue over the inclusion of sale outfits uh, in the cost of jailing or the cost um, of a sale. So the outfits are are within their kind of uh, their concerns in a business sense. So they're material, both materially necessary and symbolically important, and they're all tied in with um, with women's labor. And. One of the things that you mentioned earlier on um, briefly when uh, discussing other things was um, concubinage. And uh, one of the things that you look at uh, in further detail in the book is, you know, what this looks like for enslaved women and in particular um, a woman called Sarah Connor. And so what does her life tell us about the sort of not just sort of social status of being a concubine, but also sort of the legal status as well? Sure. Yeah. So um, Sarah Connor has this, this fascinating life story. And so, you know, Hollywood producers, if you're out there, this is a movie waiting to be made, I think, um, to tell Sarah Connor's life because it illuminates so much of, you know, the complexities um, of antebellum society. 
Um, so she was uh, born into slavery in Virginia at some point when she's in her late teens or 20s, uh, forced through the domestic slave trade to Louisiana, to New Orleans. And there she's purchased by a white woman named Jane Shelton, uh, who hired her out uh, to, uh, to, to work for others with the proceeds going back to Shelton. But during the same time, Connor was able to make a little bit of money by working on the side, um, renting out rooms, and also doing um, laundry. And while she's doing this, she somehow crosses paths with a man named Theopolis Freeman, who is an infamous New Orleans slave trader who people might be familiar with from um, 12 Years a Slave. So Freeman was the man who sold Solomon Northup in New Orleans. Uh, what happened next, as, as for much of, of this history, is, is up for debate. It's up for interpretation um, because there are conflicting accounts in the archive. But according to Connor, what happened next was that she arranged for Freeman to purchase her from Shelton, kind of acting as her agent for the purpose of buying her own freedom, that she gave Freeman the money for the purchase, and that after he purchased her, the understanding was that he was going to emancipate her for this $700 that she had accumulated um, through domestic work. So he did purchase her from Shelton, um, but if he actually had intended to free her, which is up for debate, he didn't properly register her emancipation uh, in the courts. And you know, additionally, she didn't actually meet the criteria for emancipation at that point under the law because of her age. Um, but regardless, uh, she essentially lived uh, in many ways as though she had been emancipated afterwards. Uh, she ran a boarding house. Freeman was one of her boarders. She traveled widely with, with Freeman in the northern United States, um, in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. So living in many ways as though that emancipation had been, uh, had been registered um, with the court system. But Freeman, you know, as you may have already guessed, was um, a fairly shady character. And among his many uh, other faults, he was also in debt to a lot of people and institutions at the same time that he was traveling with Connor. And when enough of those creditors came calling, he filed for bankruptcy. Um, and this initiated a court case over his assets. And some of the creditors, including um, the Bank of Kentucky, which ties into you know, the whole issue of uh, the finances of the slave trade. Um, some of these creditors petitioned the courts for Sarah Connor to be sold to pay off Freeman's debts to them, claiming that Connor had never truly been emancipated. And so this set off um, a series of court cases, um, at least a dozen court cases that lasted you know, four or five years before they were all sorted out and you know, created hundreds of pages of, of paper to try to establish what Connor's status was. And throughout, um, the, the, the creditors use the language of concubinage uh, to attempt to discredit her and to say that she hasn't been emancipated. And this story is emblematic because it's something you see over and over again in court cases from the time period, um, you know, where whether it's creditors or heirs or other parties uh, in a legal suit will use the language of concubinage against enslaved women and free women of color to call into question their freedom and claims that they might have on estates or, or property. And that was just particularly true in Louisiana because um, in Louisiana law, it specified that a concubine could not inherit more than one-tenth of a man's estate. 
And then, of course, you know, there are questions of how do you prove concubinage? Um, how do you define it? Technically, it could be applied to anyone, but the law was most often implemented against women of African descent. So in many cases, uh, if a white man had emancipated an, enslave, an enslaved woman um, after his death, if her value was over one-tenth of the value of the estate, um, it was not unheard of for the man's uh, other surviving heirs to contest whether or not she was actually free by saying that she had been his concubine and was thus ineligible to receive such a large donation from the estate, the donation being the rights of herself to herself. Um, in other cases, uh, heirs could even fight over women's right to inherit wages or property given in consideration for work by bringing up this kind of specter of concubinage. And so I think looking at the, the legal status uh, really throws into sharp relief how vulnerable um, women of African descent were, both enslaved and free, when it came to securing their rights um, to the proceeds of their labor, their property, and even their own freedom. Yeah, I think Sarah Connor's story was just really interesting to read about, um, not just because I, for me, someone who studies, you know, uh, legal history, sort of seeing how the social status of, of being a concubine works out um, is interesting in its own right. But seeing how the sort of legal dimensions of it was something that I was pretty unfamiliar with. And it was really interesting to see how that story played out. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, it's actually something that I kind of hope to um, delve more into in future projects, because you know, I mentioned kind of other cases that I, I've looked at that I didn't get to include in this project um, that involved the same question of how do you define legally what a concubine is and what her rights are and, and how do perceptions of race and class play into that. And so that's, that's something I'd like to pursue further. And one of the things that you also look at is uh, housekeeping, which I think for a lot of people might seem like a mundane task. But, you know, during the 19th uh, century, especially housekeeping was no sort of uh, easy task to begin with. But as you point out, um, what housekeeping was, its sort of very nature um, meant something completely different when it came to uh, enslaved women in the slave trade. And so what were you able to um, sort of uh, glean out of the sources in terms of what's going on with that? Yeah, it's um, housekeeping and just the idea of home. Um, these are all words that are really laden with meaning and that meaning can shift over time. And particularly in you know the early to mid 19th century, the language of home and how people thought about home was actually changing. Um, so I think when we're, when we're thinking about housekeeping, uh, it's not just uh, an action or a set of tasks, but at the time it also often meant someone going to start their own household, particularly after marriage and take on the associated responsibilities. Um, so one of the women who uh, is the focus of one of my chapters, you know, uh, she kind of quote unquote goes to housekeeping with uh, this man. And the meaning hidden in that, right, is so complex because um, it could be read to mean literally taking up this domestic labor. Um, it could be read as meaning going into a, a marriage or like a married household. Um, what it meant in the case that she was talking about was none of those things was 
not exactly those things. Um, but I think that the, uh, the language itself, right, could be used to convey a number of different ideas. Um, and when we're looking particularly at the lives of enslaved and free women of color, it can tell us how that term of housekeeping or of home could have a lot of different meanings and encompass a lot of disparate situations. Um, and could also, you know, I should also say, going back to thinking about concubinage and the fancy trade, um, the term housekeeper was sometimes used to refer kind of obliquely to um, two concubines or to enslaved women who had been sold for sex. Um, and so veiled within this language of domesticity um, was this really dark violence um, with under the language of housekeeping, which seems so innocuous. So I think you know, we just have to really critically analyze that language and think about what people at the time meant by home and housekeeping and how that translates to us today. Um, and just additionally, you know, overall in the South, thinking about how this, uh, the domestic ideal of the time and the appearance of home and domesticity for white women was really rooted in the labor of enslaved women, the labor of one group establishing the whiteness and femininity of the other. And so just not forgetting, right, that domesticity and housekeeping is also tied in to a system of racial oppression. And before we let you go, you know, I always tell my listeners to become readers and go out and grab the book. So once again, you know, we have this great book in front of us, uh, Alexander J. Finley's An Intimate Economy, Enslaved Women Work in America's Domestic Slave Trade. So we have this great work in front of us, and you sort of alluded to some future projects um, a minute ago, but what can we expect from you in the future and, you know, I know that this book just came out and there's also a global pandemic going on. So if you say that I'm just taking a much needed break, that is a completely fine answer. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I am. Um, well, I'm, I'm dying to get back to New Orleans, you know, um, to get back to that public library and look at those court cases. Um, but I think uh, my goal overall is uh, to take some of the records, you know, that I found and I thought were just incredibly revealing, um, but wasn't able to fit into um, the current project. Uh, so my goal is now just really to go back to those to try to find additional sources that speak to the experiences of women involved um, in, in socially reproductive labor. And I'm especially interested in how that kind of work facilitated the existence and the expansion of port cities like New Orleans um, and how providing food, shelter, you know, and support for sailors, merchants, other travelers, um, how that facilitated broader economic expansion, particularly in a southern port city, right? Thinking about how enslaved labor, wage work, and unpaid labor of, of uh women who were wives or daughters, sisters, how those all coexisted. Um, so those are broadly speaking, my research interests moving forward, but I think they're all going to be, whatever I end up doing is going to be driven by kind of whatever voices and stories emerge from the records I'm able to find. Well, that certainly sounds very interesting. And I'm sure once you have that work um, finished, we will have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me.